Okay. <laughs> Having taken my clerical pulpit, again, <laughs> I shall intone to you uh, from this position. Um, okay. What I want to speak to about tonight includes the Brahma Viharas and the very, very brief survey of, of Metta Karuna, friendliness and what's generally translated as compassion, outgoing kindness is an alternative translation, and I'll say why. But specifically, I want to focus in on actually the side of the Brahma Viharas that never really gets much airplay, which is uh, joy and equanimity, and I want to relate this to liberation, which is the goal of what this practice is all about. Very specifically, the Buddhist teaching is aimed at liberation from greed, aversion, and delusion. I think we forget that, again, often at our cost, that this is what the practice is actually aimed at. It's waking up to that which keeps us bound to greed, aversion, and delusion, and awakening and moving forward into something which in a way is psychologically much more emancipated than the constrictedness of being tied to greed, aversion, and delusion. And in fact, in many ways, putting it in a very kind of, in a very, almost in a harsh way, we have a choice to make. How do we want to live? might be the choice, that might be the question that we ask ourselves. How do we actually want to live? How do we wish to live in this world? How do we wish to dwell in this world? Do we wish to dwell with a psychology which in a sense is rooted in greed, aversion and delusion? Or do we wish to live in this world with a psychology which is rooted in the complete opposites of greed, aversion and delusion? So instead of greed, we have generosity. Instead of aversion, we have friendliness, love. Instead of delusion, we have understanding, often translated as wisdom, but really is more like a penetrating understanding of the way things actually are and the ability to live in accordance with the way things, aren't they, and the way things are. This, in a sense, is a stark choice that we're confronted with. And I think, as I say, we forget this often at our peril because then, in a way, the practice becomes almost, I'm going to again put this rather harshly, almost like creating a better sangsara rather than actually what um, the practice is aimed at. This would be a, a bit like, I don't know, driving a supercharged car at 30 miles an hour. You know, rather than actually taking it to its full potential. So this, potent this potentiality in the path is the potentiality to be liberated. And we have quite a, quite a range of words. Uh, the most standard word, and I shall use the Sanskrit version of it because it's the most common, it's the one you'll even find in the Oxford English Dictionary, is nirvana. And I'll say a lot more about that. But we have the sense of vimutti, Stopping, ending, liberating, mocha. Yeah. We have all of these words which are indicating somehow the goal, the, the future of what this practice is actually aimed at. It aims at this because in many ways there is a huge pathos to the human condition 
when it is simply rooted in greed, aversion, and delusion. And I think we all know um, the pathos of that situation because in many ways we live it day to day. We live with the, in the sense, the, the consequences of that psychology. Now, if we did a genealogical tree of all of the emotional states, all of the uh, emotions, all of the mental states that we experience, we would find that they were traceable to one of six roots. Three considering to, considered to be unwholesome and three considered to be wholesome. You know, three, you know, no guesses about which is which. You know, the unwholesome being rooted, obviously, in greed, aversion and delusion, and the wholesome being rooted in that which is its complete opposite. So let us not forget that this, this path has a trajectory, it has a goal, it has something which it aims at. And sometimes I think the, the goal, which is spoken of generally as nirvana, enlightenment, which is a word that I actually really dislike. Uh, I tend to think that enlightenment is only something that occurred in the 18th century, basically in Europe. <laughs> Um, and has absolutely nothing to do with the Buddhist goal. Um, the goal, of course, that the Buddha offers us, which is a challenge, is a challenge to wake up. That's the challenge, you know, to, to come awake, to wake up to the way things are. And the way things are is not some kind of hidden, mysterious element somehow behind appearances. You know, so many philosophers in this you know, world, both Eastern and Western, have spoken about reality kind of lurking behind things, often putting it into a meta metaphysical reality, into a metaphysical world, a kind of heavenly state, that we're going to really encounter reality somewhere else, as if you know, somehow appearances are um, you know, lesser, and what is, real, what is real. Of course, what we experience, everything that we experience is subject to change. And this is one of the things that the Buddha speaks of again and again and again. In fact, it, in a way, uh, is the condensation of this is found in his final words that all compounded phenomena are impermanent, now strive on. Yeah. You would think he might give a big discourse at the end of his life. He doesn't. He says this. You know, All compounded phenomena are impermanent. Now strive on with diligence. Yeah. So this is the one of the things that we're waking up to, to the, the truth of impermanence. We're not waking up to some kind of shadowy thing behind the phenomena that we see. We're waking up to the truth that change is as good as it gets. There is no um, unchanging phenomena that we are going to encounter anywhere. And I think for us psychologically, we can hear this as both frightening and also liberating. Here's your first liberation. Being liberated from the idea that we're going to somehow find something that doesn't change. You know, that we're going to establish ourselves in some kind of unchanging reality. Uh, Nietzsche, the German philosopher, once said that he thought the whole history of philosophies, both West and East, was the revenge against time. Yeah. Because we're always searching for that which doesn't change. Even the Greek word phenomena, 
which is actually means appearances, was a pejorative term. It meant something derogatory, something which wasn't real. The Buddha, on the other hand, is affirming the reality of what we see, but is affirming it in the sense of its changing nature, that is not unchanging. Now, all I'm saying here is a long way of getting around to what I really want to talk about tonight. So we have this background of living rooted in greed, aversion, and delusion. We have a goal, which is the goal of liberation, and that liberation is tied to the understanding of the way things are, and just as one example of the way things are, we can speak about impermanence. We can speak about change. And as many of you will know, particularly those who've been on retreats many times, we have these three characteristics of existence. This is, this is what we find. We wake up to these three characteristics, that things are changed, they are dukkha, and they are not-self. In many ways, the not-self part of this, which people rack their brains around trying to understand what not-self is, it just means the lack of fixity within you, that you are a process. Just like everything in this world is a process, you are a process too. And in many ways, this is a direct correlate to impermanence, isn't it? There is no exemption certificate for human beings as to impermanence. You know, we are all changing. You can't wave this little exemption certificate saying, oh, not me, I'm not changing. <laughs> Although sometimes that's the way it feels, doesn't it? Um, so we have this understanding that the Buddha is trying to get across to us, to really get us to understand our rootedness, our complicity in our own dukkha. Yeah? And our complicity in our own dukkha is, of course, that when we look for the permanent in the impermanent, we don't find it. When we look for certainties in this world, and are attached to the idea of certainty and security and stability and identity, all of these things which have, human beings have sought for for centuries, we are bound to fail, and in the failure, there is pain. There is often woundedness. There is certainly dissatisfaction. You know, is this all there is? Sometimes we can feel swept along on a current, a tide, of change. You know, uh, that current often threatens to undermine everything that we value in this life. Yeah. So part of the challenge that the Buddha is offering us is to strive on diligently. Yeah. To make meaning of this life in the face of that constant changing nature, that impermanent nature of things which includes you, with no exemption certificate, no get-out-of-jail clause here. Yeah. So this is the challenge. Now, what, and that's kind of almost, almost the downside of what he has to say, but on the upside of it is he's saying, actually, you're not resourceless in attempting this. This is the, if you like, almost the joyful side of it. 
to actually identify the resources that we have to be able to live meaningfully in this world and to engage with this world in a way which, in a sense, brings life to some kind of fruition. Much of what we do, and we know, I think, and this was mentioned the other night, but in the escalating depression rates in the West, whatever we are trying to do to become happy in this world ain't working. Yeah. We've got these spiraling depression rates, you know, this burgeoning outbreak of depression, not just in the Western world, but now worldwide. As Western values are exported to other cultures, this becomes not just a problem for the Western world, for affluent societies, but it becomes a problem for world societies because we export the kind of ways of trying to solve the problem that actually don't work as well. Just a couple of figures on this. I was sharing it with one of my groups today, and the figures today is that over the last 20 years, that the, um, the figure for the first onset of depression has actually gone from aged 52, this was about 20 years ago, to now aged 15. Yeah. And it's done that in 20 years. The World Health Organization now views uh, depression as going to be the next major health crisis worldwide outside of cardiac problems. You know, this shows you the enormity of the problem. And that's just one, if you like, mental health problem that we can encounter here. So there's something about what we're doing that just doesn't work. And this doesn't make us bad people. I really, really want to emphasize this. This does not make us, in some sense, culpable and guilty. It, often makes us complicit, but we use the tools that we know. We use the tools that are proffered by our societies, don't we, to try to gain happiness, to try and gain peace, contentment, whatever word really works for you. You know, sometimes I get a little suspicious of this word happiness. You know, it can mean many, many things. But often there is something within our lives that we're striving from, and actually part of that is actually eventually to see striving so that I can rest. Yeah. And the Buddha, of course, identifies that the greatest happiness, he says, is contentment. This is the greatest happiness. So here we have one of our first candidates, perhaps for what liberation might look like, being contented. The lack of agitation, the disappearance of agitation in our lives, and all the ways that psychologically that, manifest, that agitation manifests, you know, in terms of anxiety, in terms of depression, in terms of jealousies, in terms of hatreds and dislikes and aversions, graspings and cravings, and I could go on and it could be a night's litany uh, that I laid out in front of you here of all the sorts of things that actually are involved in that agitated state. The things that don't work, that are proffered to quell the agitation, actually escalate it. This is likened in the suttas to pouring or placing more fuel on the fires, to actually increasing the fires rather than putting them out. And there is much usage in the early texts of fire metaphors. Fire was very important in ancient Indian society. It was that which all the rituals used to take place around. 
you know, all the rituals of passage in ancient Indian society would take place around basically three fires, usually incorporated into a temple. But at home, there would also be a ritual fire for most Brahmins, um, which you would do your ceremonies you know, around or to. And you'd often make sacrifices to it. And in later Indian society, this became things like ghee, clarified butter, and sesame seeds, and coconuts, and all sorts of things that were placed on these fires, which was to placate the gods. Uh, the Buddha makes use of this, but he metaphorizes it. He says, we have three fires which never go out. The Brahmins never put out their fires, by the way. They're always kept burning. You kept fueling them. And the Buddha uses this as a metaphor. And so these, the greed, aversion, and delusion that he speaks about become the three fires of greed, aversion, and delusion. And most of the activities that we engage in normally are the ones that increase those fires, actually fuel those fires, rather than put them out. There is no cooling of those fires, certainly within much of our lives in Western society. We're exacerbating it. The ways that we exacerbate it, I think, are extremely familiar. Akinshino touched on a lot of those last night. You know, Tanha particularly this thirst, this craving, this Janus-faced activity that we're engaged in, you know, of bhava, the craving for status and power and money and all sorts of things, and the vibhava, the, actually the ultimate drive perhaps not to exist, not to want things in our lives, to push them away, for them not to be there. Yeah. And of course, the sensual desire. I don't think it gets a great deal of thought to obviously realize that Western society is full of objects of sensual desire, yeah? which are placed there as objects of craving for us. And aren't we told by all the advertising that we see working, I think Kenshino again mentioned this last night, aren't we told by all those adverts we are going to be better, more contented, happier individuals if we have X? Y or Z. Isn't that what advertising is often all about here? Convincing us that we need these things and we lack them in our lives and without them we are in some ways poorer individuals here. The Buddha actually had a very graphic image. He likened um, the craving for sensual things, uh, which is so much part of Western society as I say, not exclusively uh, relegated to the East, he likened it to a dog outside of a butcher's shop who is thrown a bone. And that bone doesn't have any flesh on it. it, has, it just, he says it's just smeared with blood. And the dog chews the bone again and again and again and again, looking for some kind of nutriment out of it, some kind of nutrition. I think it's a wonderful metaphor. I don't know how it strikes you, but uh, I think it's a wonderful metaphor for much of what we're doing. We're chewing over the same things again and again and again, looking for something that gives us some nutriment. Yeah. We're looking for something which will give us some satisfaction. And these things give us satisfaction for a very limited period of time. And the thirst, which is actually the meaning of the word tanha, is of course then the movement onto the next object of desire. Yeah? So we move from object of desire to object of desire to object of desire, and this is actually an endless task. Yeah? 
psychologically we're just moving from one thing to another, from one thing to another. You know? um, the psychoanalyst Jacques Lacan spoke about this as being the endless quest that is actually never completed. It's only, he, what's he, put, he puts it in a term, it's only sort of buttoned down for a relatively short period of time before the button pops up again and you're on to the next thing. Yeah. So that is all we're engaged in. Okay, this is a long way of getting around to what I really want to say this evening. <laughs> <laughs> I might, you might call that prologue. <laughs> <laughs> we now move on. <laughs> to the real aspect of what I want to speak about tonight. Because part of what the Buddha diagnoses as the problem is we're tied to certain forms of behavior. We're bound to certain forms of behavior which keep us tied to looking for things in certain ways, looking for our satisfactions in certain areas uh, and in certain domains with never actually finding anything within that, as I've already indicated. So, one meaning, and I'm going to just throw this out tentatively at this beginning, the beginning of this, or you know, it's getting on into the talk, but uh, you know, I'll throw it out at this stage, that one tentative meaning of the word nibbana might be to start to unbind from forms of behavior, forms of habitual if you like, pleasure-seeking, forms which keep us tied to a consequence of that pleasure-seeking. That consequence, I think we all know, it's called dukkha, dissatisfaction. Now, much of Buddhist thought is tied to the diagnosis of that, and this is really why I've spent this period of time looking at that area. You know, we've only touched the surface, we've skimmed the surface, we could you know, spend the rest of the evening just examining this and the rest of the week just examining this diagnostically as what is the cause of the problem. There is this problem, the Buddha is a problem thinker, and this is the problem, that we have dukkha, that we experience it. The good news is that if we can start to identify how that dukkha is produced, how we exacerbate our conditions such that dukkha is the almost automatic consequence of our activities, then we can start to liberate ourselves from them if we can actually identify them. And much of Buddhist thought is tied to that, to that whole endeavor of trying to do that. And I'm sure if you've been on retreat many times, you'll have experienced talks which do exactly that go diagnostically into what is actually causing this problem that most of us experience. What gets us here? Yeah. What gets us into this position of feeling tied to certain emotional states, tied to certain searches for identity, certain searches for security, looking for certainty in this life? You know, what, is, what ties us to those activities? So much time is spent on that. However, a lot of that can appear very negative. A lot of that can appear very negative, although it is extremely important. I would never underestimate the importance of this as a task. In fact, I spend a lot of my time speaking about exactly that. The causes and conditions that give rise to the problems that we have at this moment in time. 
when we come to the Brahma Viharas, lovely, interesting word, word Brahma Viharas. It doesn't really have a good translation here. Brahma abodes is probably um, one possible translation I've seen of this. Um, I think you have to understand a little bit about this, but when we come to the Brahma Viharas, the Brahma Viharas offer us a strategy whereby we can move towards liberating ourselves from being tied to certain forms of habitual behavior. And this is what is so important from them. They are liberating devices. They are liberating attitudes. They are liberating ways of dwelling in this world. Now, I deliberately use that because the word vihara, as many of you will probably know, in Pali and Sanskrit, actually means to dwell. It's a dwelling place. A Brahma vihara was literally the dwelling place of Brahma. Brahma being the chief of the Indian gods. And if you actually said at the time of the Buddha to any, what we would now call Hindu, although it wasn't Hinduism in those days, if we said this word Brahma Vihara, they would understand it as a synonym for liberation. If you were going to go and dwell with Brahma, it meant you were liberated. So these were means to liberation. They were insightful practices which generated a means to liberation by learning to dwell in this world in a totally changed and utterly different way. Now I want to make very, very clear from the start, and you might have heard this from Christina this afternoon in her introduction into, um, in, in when she introduced Meta yesterday, that the four states or the four aspects of the Brahma Viharas are not actually emotional states. They are ways that we can dwell in this world. If emotion arises, it's, it's, it's as a consequence rather than the primary dimension of the Brahma Viharas. Yeah. So they are not complex emotions, they are not um, emotional states which we seek to attain, they are more attitudinally directed as ways of dwelling in the world. Okay? We have four of them, as you know. We start off with metta. Well, much has been said about metta, more will be said about metta as we go through this, so I'll only touch on this very briefly. But metta is the foundation out of which the others grow. Metta, I would really like to, and I'm sure Christina will have said this, because um, we teach a lot together and um, we're kind of on a little bit one on this, I'd like to banish the translation loving-kindness. Yeah. It just really, really does not reflect what the word metta really means. Um, it's, it's cognate to another term in Pali which means to befriend yeah. or to be a friend. So really what we're talking about is an attitude of friendliness. It's an attitudinal, it's, a, it's an intentional attitude that we bring to things and bring particularly to bear in the formal practice as you have been practicing it this afternoon. It, you usually bring it to bear on a number of different interpersonal relationships. Yeah. Yourself. Sometimes somebody who has helped you, who has been a beneficiary to you, a benefactor. 
in some way. A dear friend, somebody who really is neutral. Yeah. Actually, I'd be a little bit stronger than that and actually say somebody you're fairly indifferent to. Yeah. And finally, for someone you dislike. Now, the first thing I think you have to notice about the Brahma Viharas is they make a movement. They make a movement in a sense, even when we're sitting on a cushion, to connecting inter- interpersonally with others. These are about relationship. They're about relations. They're not sitting isolated alone, as we can so often feel, I think, in a meditative environment. Here we are, isolated, alone, sitting, doing our practice, focusing on our breath. Well, actually, these get you to connect with others. The whole, in a sense, directedness of the Brahma Viharas is generally outwards towards others. This is very, very important. This is about connectedness. There's a kind of stickiness uh, to these terms that actually makes us adhere to others in our thought patterns and hopefully in our attitudinal responses in ordinary life that we can bring. So we start with metta as being the soil. I gather that when Christina introduced this to you, she basically quoted, and I will quote it again, a very um, beautiful short piece from a 14th century Tibetan thinker called Longchenpa, Longchen Rabjampa. Let the beautiful bloom of compassion grow out of the soil of friendliness. Water it with tears of joy in the cool shade of the tree of equanimity. It's a lovely image, isn't it? And I think one of the first things that might strike you about that image is the interrelatedness of these four practices. They're not isolated. In fact, as I say, and I think this is the beautiful dimension of that quote, is that there is a soil. That soil is necessary to be tilled. That soil is necessary in some ways to be cultivated, to grow the other Brahma-viharas out of it. The most basic attitude of metta, and again, this has already been mentioned, so I'm not saying something new, the most basic attitude of metta that we can see, even when we're not doing official metta practice, formal metta practice, is when we turn towards that which is difficult. When we turn towards that which is arising in our minds. This gentle turning towards, this gentle acknowledgement of what is there is the most basic stance of metta. It doesn't get any more basic than this. When we develop a friendlier attitude towards what is there, ultimately this can be, of course, translated in a way that we see the world. We look upon the world not with eyes of aversion, not with eyes of greed, but perhaps, and this again is, I'm going to turn it slightly into a question, perhaps we can look at this world with an attitude and with eyes which in a sense are seeing this world with friendliness. To see this world with friendliness, to see this world with love, I think is often um, there, often in the artistic experience in the experience of poets, in the experience of artists, in the experience of sculptors, in the way that you can look at things. In fact, I've got a quote here which I would like to read to you about the experience of looking. And this is by an artist who lives in England. 
If we spent more time looking at things, and by more time I mean really, re, sorry, let me start again. If we spent more time looking at things, and by more time I really mean sitting for hours, and by looking I really mean gazing, and less time channel hopping our way through life, would we be less violent, unhappy beings? Can we continue to fear or hate, or even begin to feel indifferent to something when we've really looked at it properly? This, of course, is the great privilege of drawing. She's an artist who does a lot of drawing. This is the great privilege of drawing, as John Berger has said, a drawing of a tree is not a tree, nor is it me. It was a drawing, it is a drawing of a tree being looked at. It contains the experience of the looking. I would go further and say that a good drawing, honestly done, inevitably contains the experience of love and gratitude. Not only for the object, but for life itself. I think within that rather lovely quote, I feel it's a very lovely quote, I think is encapsulated the spirit of metta, the way that our looking at ourselves and looking at our foibles and the fine kinds of things that arise for us, our difficulties, those things can be not looked at with aversion and disdain and dislike, but we can looked at in a completely different way. Similarly, when we move out into the world and we start to look at the world and the world, of, the world looked at through the eye of metta, perhaps is a completely different world than the world, I would suggest, looked at through the eye of greed, looked at through the eye of aversion, looked at through the eye of delusion here. So this is a completely different experience. And so this is foundational. We make the move into, if you like, an expression of that. An expression of that being able to look at things more kindly, more look, look at things more with a more friendly attitude. We make that movement then into what generally is translated as compassion. The words that are used by the Buddha, and there's two words which are used, which often, often both translated as compassion, one which will possibly be familiar to many of you is the word karuna, and another word which is used, which is the word anukampa, much less familiar to people than the word karuna, usually. The word karuna, I would suggest, is much more related to a sense of activity, and I'll come back to why that's the case. Whereas the word anukampa in this is much more related to a sense of empathy. The word literally means to resonate along with. Another translation, particularly of the Sanskrit, anukrusha, um, can actually mean to cry out at the crying out of another. Yeah. So it has a very deep experience of empathetic relationship within this. Out of that movement between the empathetic relationship and the sense of doing emerges what perhaps we would label 
compassion, but I would actually label outgoing kindness. It's a f- kindness as an activity. The word karuna is actually about what one does. It's not about a state of mind. It's about what one does. The word is actually related to another word in Pali and Sanskrit, which is kriya, which means to act, yeah? to do something. So when we speak about <coughs> compassion, which seems like a very lofty, elevated emotion, it's actually about activity. As my, one of my teachers often used to say to me when I was in, the, in Tibetan monasteries in India, that compassion was actually thinking of others even when they're not there by removing, for example, obstacles on a path, even when there is nobody there, that one still takes the wood off the path, takes the obstacles, the boulders or whatever it might be, off that path. Because in a sense, what you're still doing is you're still engaging with others even if you're not confronted with them. So this is a total, in a sense, admission that we live in a world not on our own, but we live in a world of others. And much of what ourselves and others experience, and this is, the, this is part of the dynamic of this, what others and ourselves experience is often painful. It's extremely painful. This is the dimension of life which is there as the pain dimension of life. Yeah. Where we see pain, you know, this notion of activity really encourages us to try to do something about it. We see pain in our own lives, then perhaps to act to alleviate that pain. But we see pain in the lives of others to act, to do something to alleviate that pain. The Mahayanist uh, writer and meditator Shantideva in his Bodhicharya Avatara, the deeds of the Bodhisattva, said it made no sense to talk about my pain and your pain. It only made sense to talk about pain. This is what we share together. And so these first two dimensions of the Brahma Viharas relating back to the very early part of what I was saying, deal with pain. They deal with the more difficult dimensions of life. But, here things get a little lighter. (laughs) Don't look so depressed, it's not as bad as all that. Um, The next movement in the Brahma Viharas, and this is really what I've in a sense, we've been leading up to. The next dimension of the Brahma Viharas deals with that in our lives and in the lives of others, and particularly in the lives of others, which isn't painful, which is actually joyful. The word mudita has a sense of a gentle, pervasive joy within it, an infectious joy. Yeah. This is the joy, specifically as we see it in early texts and commentaries, the joy that takes joy in the good fortune of others, yeah. in their good fortune. I would like to extend this and actually would like to uh, encourage us to see good fortune in our own lives, 
as well. There is much that is good in our lives. We can focus on all that is bad. Again, this has been said many times so far in the retreat. We can focus on much that is, is difficult, which is problematic. As I say, so much of you know, the early part of this talk has been devoted to a sense of diagnostics of that. A huge part of the Buddhist path is de- de- you know, devoted to the diagnostics of that. Yet... We can so easily overlook the joyful dimensions of life. Dare I say the humorous dimensions of life as well? I almost feel it ought to be part of every good meditator's toolbox is a good sense of humor. Because much of what we discover is not just painful, it's laughable at times. (laughs) Particularly, particularly when we realize that we keep on doing it to ourselves. Yeah. I don't know if it's ever struck you, is it? Yeah. Here I am, doing it again. Let me shove another arrow in. <laughs> yeah. I'll just see if that really hurts. <laughs> yeah. So, I would suggest that even part of this joyfulness which is indicated, and there's many places that joy is spoken of, it's even considered, I'm not going to go into this this evening, it's obviously considered as well, to be part of the pillars, the supports, the limbs of awakening. That joy is there. This is not a joyless path. This is not a path that lacks, in a sense, humor. And this is an amazingly important dimension of what we're engaged in. If we lose that, we're left with simply the pain. Yeah? And that can be overwhelming, particularly if I start not only to think about my own painful experiences, my own sense of dissatisfaction, my own elements of unsatisfactoriness, my anxieties, my fears, etc., etc., and I start to see others, one can feel absolutely overwhelmed at the amount of suffering in this world and I deliberately use that word we can feel overwhelmed by the amount of suffering in this world however part of what we see when we start to look at the joyful dimension particularly this way of beginning to see the world that the world isn't simply full of pain it's full of joy and it's also full of another word that's rarely used or not used quite so frequently um, of wonder. Abhuta is the word that's usually used. Yeah. It's full of wonder. Um, we often lose that sense of wonder. <clears throat> the wonder of our being here, the wonder that that tree is, the wonder that this color is. And this is a diminution, a loss of life. If I go back to my earlier theme where I started about the liberation, obviously, yes, it's the liberation from dukkha. This is what is spoken about, particularly the sankhara dukkha, the self-inflicted, self-constructed dukkha that we live. There is so much pain we can't avoid, but the problem the Buddha diagnoses is that we inflict so much of it on ourselves by constructing it for ourselves. We construct it for ourselves even in things like resistance, in the aversive tendencies that we take up. We don't move in um, to a position where we just see the pain as pain. 
we move into positions, I think, of constriction and resistance, which actually make the painful more painful in this. Now, I don't know whether you've experienced that. I often liken it to that we don't relax to pain. We tighten up, and in the tightening up, it becomes more painful. And if you can think of that occurring on the psychological level, this is often what we're doing. Now, if we're left with that, again, it's fairly overwhelming. Whereas this movement I'm suggesting that the, that the Buddha really recommends, which initially starts with the movement in appreciating the joys of others. In other words, it's the simple acknowledgement that there is joy in this world. There is good fortune. Yeah. Life, as one particular you know, phrase that's often used in the Brahma Viharas in, in Sri Lanka, life is but a play of joy and sorrow. It's not unalloyed joy, and it's not unalloyed sorrow. It's a play, and it's an interplay between the two. If we fixate and focus on the negative dimension, we do ourselves a huge disservice. We do ourselves a huge disservice. We lose what the liberation is spoken about by the Buddha, which is really encouraging. This is not just liberation from, it's a liberation into life. It's a liberation from dukkha. It's a liberation from greed, aversion, and delusion. You could say it's a freedom from those things. But it's also a liberation into life. Much of, of what we're engaged in doesn't allow us to fully engage with life. We become almost neurotic obsessives. We become people who control life by doing the same thing again and again and again and again. From the Buddhist perspective, everybody has OCD. There is nobody who's exempt at this stage because we keep on doing the same stuff again and again and again and again, thinking that we're going to get a particular result. Often we don't get that result. Mostly we don't get that result. We don't get the security we looked for. We don't get the happiness we desired. We don't certainly get the peace and contentment. We often feel on a treadmill. Joy is part, if I would say, part of the the oil which eases us into life. When we start to see joy and wonder in our experience even of the everyday. That experience of looking that was spoke about, you know, which I related to more like the meta experience, that experience of looking, when we really begin to look and appreciate and experience joy at what is, in the being of another, in the being of an animal, in the being of a tree, in the being of many, many things that we encounter in life, we are somehow liberated from our own neurotic strivings. Isn't this one of the things that, that nature is so good at? It literally can take us outside of ourselves. It takes us into an experience of the sublime in our lives. Yeah. And so joy becomes part of that which eases us back into life. 
Part of this is it's not textual, it's not canonical at all, but I tend to, when I look at this, I tend to think, well, included in that experience of joy is the experience of laughter, the experience of humor, often so beautifully captured sometimes in Zen attitudes. You don't find it a lot in the early texts. There's a kind of Indian seriousness in a lot of the early texts. Um, and even the jokes don't translate very well. Um, but sometimes in... in for example, the Zen tradition, we get very serious points being made through humor. Yeah? Very serious points being made through humor. About the experience of being here, about the experience of really being engaged in life, of having that sense of wonder, having that sense of joy, just at the small little things in life. Not in the big, huge things, but in the little things that we can you know, experience in our day-to-day experience. One, I'll just only touch on one little story I'm very fond of, which is a Zen story, which is in one of the collections, I forget which one, of, and, of a Zen master who's dying, he's on his deathbed. And um, the disciples gather around him and they um, talk to each other and say, what can we get for the master for his, you know, something he really likes, something he takes great pleasure in. And they say, well, he, he loves a certain cake. And so they go out and buy this cake for the, for the Zen master who's lying on his deathbed, basically. And um, what they do is they give the cake to the master. The master eats a piece of cake and then he expires, having just said a few words. And um, there's only a few few of the disciples who've been privileged to have heard what he said and the others all gather around him and say and what did he say what was his final teaching he said it was lovely cake (laughs) 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 I think that says it all about the experience of being present (laughs) The humor aside, though, it says something serious, doesn't it? Yeah. But it says it through a dimension which lifts our hearts suddenly, you know, through that experience of humor, through that experience of joy. And so, really what I'm trying to say to you is that if we neglect this dimension, this joyful dimension, first of all, primary, and this is canonical, this is textual, of taking joy in the good fortune of others, really beginning to resonate with them. That's empathy as well. Not just, you know, in their time of suffering, in their time of you know, unhappiness and difficulty, but to actually resonate with someone in their time of joy, sometimes is perhaps, I would suggest, even a bigger task than trying to do it when somebody is in pain. Isn't it? You know, what do you mean? I feel so happy that you've just won the lottery. <laughs> yeah. So, there is that dimension. Now, I would like to extend this and say, actually, we can do ourselves a service by extending that sense of joy in our own lives through appreciation of what is good in our own lives when we kind of do a review, there's a form of Buddhism which is practiced in Japan, which many of you might have heard of, called Shin Buddhism. And Shin Buddhism is one of the Pure Land schools, basically. 
And part of the practice um, is the practice of gratitude. That's their primary practice in Shin Buddhism, is the practice of gratitude. I knew a professor from Tokyo University who was a Shin Buddhist who used to go along to the temple every morning just to express gratitude for what was good in his life. Now, I think this is a really psychologically sound practice because we can spend so much time and be so fixated, cannot, can't we, on just thinking about what is a problem in our lives rather than actually saying, this is good. This actually I take pleasure in. This I appreciate. This uplifts my heart. Yeah. Even those who are in the most difficult throes of depression laugh from time to time. Yeah. Sometimes in the most darkest moods we can experience a sense of joyfulness. This is, in a sense, the acknowledgement that joy, appreciation is part of our lives. It's part of the warp and woof that is woven into the fabric of our lives. And it's not just all problems, although sometimes it can look like that. Finally, because time is running out, I want to mention equanimity because good things and bad things happen to us constantly. Yeah? Equanimity, it's not a word that's used a lot in this world anymore. It seems quite an old-fashioned, strange word in many ways. Um, often when I've been, you know, often when I've taught students, you know, equanimity, they'll say, what, what does equanimity mean? You know, it actually shows you something about, in a sense, an absence in our life. When a word drops out, often that which underlies it drops out. You know, when usage isn't so common, then it becomes an unusual, rarefied word. Uh, that people don't mean. It often means it's not actually identifying anything anymore in life. And so when we come to equanimity, what do we mean by equanimity? Well, you know, to quote Shakespeare, you know, the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune. You know, Hamlet's soliloquy. Those things are happening again and again and again and again. We're getting buffeted by the waves of those slings and arrows of outrageous fortune. But sometimes, actually, to extend that, sometimes the fortune is good and sometimes it isn't good. You know, again, it comes back to life is a play of joy and sorrow, moving in and out of our lives. You know, in a day, we can, we can do this. One way of interpreting, I don't know if you've come across this, one way of, for example, interpreting this whole Tibetan wheel of life, particularly the sections which are divided into so-called rebirths, is you on a day. Going through hells, going through heavens, you know, going through animalistic behavior, going through desirous you know, wanting that can never be satisfied, you know, um, living like gods, living like those who want to be gods, yeah. And uh, as a teacher once put to me, he said, how often are you human in a day? Yeah. When you look at that, you know, those six realms of existence, they become, if you like, templates of psychological life that we move in and out of just in a day. That represents, in a sense, 
what is going on, this buffeting, this movement, this swirling around of stuff that's happening both good and bad for us again and again and again. Equanimity, the image of equanimity is the image of poise, is the image of balance. They have a term in the Abhidhamma which is a synonym which is used for the term upekka, which is the word in Pali which is used, which is tatramajatata. And this word literally means in the middle of. Yeah. It means in the middle of. And so we can be in the middle of. And I tend to interpret this as not only just about being middling between the good and the bad, but literally being in the midst of, in the middle of life, in the midst of that swirl of good things and bad things that are happening to us. And the equanimous mind is the mind that is not thrown off balance by that. The mind that isn't pushed and pulled, or to use another um, analogy here, is not like a pinball being thrown around a machine, you know, just being flipped from one thing to another, from desolation to happiness, to desolation, back to happiness, back to a bit of joyfulness, back to desolation, back to pain. Just flipped around in this way. The mind of equanimity is the mind that rests in comfort, in ease, in equipoise, in the midst of all of that, in the midst of life. So it's not a mind which is disengaged. It's not a life that is disengaged. It's a life that's fully engaged, but not being thrown around by the good or the bad that is happening to you. An image I often use to describe this is an image of a ballet dancer basically on point shoes moving through life without being knocked off balance. So the movement here is the movement through the midst of life, through those slings and arrows of outrageous fortune, without there being, being pulled to one side or the other, trying to push away the pain, the problems, the difficulties, whilst trying to cling to the good things and the joys. Coming out of mudita, one can see how this happens, because we ha- and coming and arising out of actually the metta-karuna part, the pain, the joy, and now the equanimity. I hope you can see, although it's not necessarily linear in their development, how naturally this arises. You know, with the appreciation of the painful side of life, with the appreciation of the joyful side of life, now find the balance. Now rest without being pushed and pulled, thrown around. In many ways, and these can be my final comments here for this evening, in many ways what we get with, a vis- with an image and with a vision of equanimity, of the equanimous mind, is a vision of liberation. A mind which is not tied to having to have good things and having to avoid bad things in life. The equanimous mind, I think, is a good image of the liberated mind. The mind that has ceased to be bound to the habit of pleasure-seeking, to the avoidance of that which is difficult and problematic and painful, but to a mind which rests in its own joyfulness, 
and its own settledness in this world and in the midst of this world. And I think this is a very lovely image of what liberation is. Liberation here is not, this nirvana that we speak of is not liberation into some state, but it's a liberation from being bound to patterns of behavior which disturb constantly the balance of the mind in this life. I just want to finish on a quote, and it's not a quotation by, from a Buddhist source. It actually is a quotation from George Eliot, the um, novelist. And she says this, she says, Look on other lives beside your own. See what their troubles are. See how they are born. Try to care something. Try to care about something in this vast world, besides the gratification of your small, selfish desires. Try to care for what is best and good in all of your thought and action. Something that is good, apart from the simple accidents of your own lot. Okay, thank you. Let's uh, just have a minute's silence just to finish. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.